Hello and welcome to Pathways, where you are invited to join me for a visit with leaders in personal development and cultural evolution. This is your host, Paul O'Brien. Envisioning the way forward for humanity in the face of unprecedented crises, it's no easy task. And today we'll be discussing the contents of a book that demonstrates how the wisdom of indigenous peoples, along with reverence for the divine feminine, combined with the power of psychedelic mind-expanding agents, can help us enact a radical shift in consciousness and heal our world's collective disconnection from spirit. Our guest on today's show is Stephen Gray, editor of the new book, How Psychedelics Can Help Save the World, Visionary and Indigenous Voices Speak Out. Stephen is a teacher and writer on spiritual subjects and sacramental medicines. He has worked extensively with Tibetan Buddhism, the Native American Church, and with entheogenic medicines. He is also a conference and workshop organizer, leader, and speaker. And he's one of the organizers of a favorite conference of mine, the annual Spirit, uh, Spirit Plant Medicine Conference in Vancouver, BC. Well, hello, Stephen, and welcome back to the Pathway Show. Yeah, thanks, Paolo. Hey, let's start by asking about the title of the book or the subtitle of our book. You know, saving our world seems to be a major theme throughout. Can you give us the context for that point of view? Mm -hmm. Yeah. How long do I have? Like three hours, maybe? <laughs> um, uh, uh, okay. Uh, un, un, uncharacteristically, I'll try to squeeze it into a, a you know twenty-eight words or less, sort of. Um, in any case. Uh, Okay, the shortest answer I can give to that that actually does it justice in my mind is that um, as Chris Beige, who has chapter number one for a particular reason in the book, because he creates the sort of, or he looks at the big picture of things, um, points out we, the collective karma of the species has been coming, uh, has reached a point that we've been coming to for perhaps thousands of years, if not tens of thousands of years, uh, for whatever number of reasons, uh, changing climate, um, just the buildup of 8 billion people on the planet, Etc. 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 et cetera, and that spiritual disconnection that you spoke of in the introduction, which I quite enjoyed, by the way. Um, and, um, and so we have, for whatever reason, uh, we have to acknowledge that we have reached a nexus point, a crisis point on the planet. And a good part of it, quite possibly not all of it, but a significant part of it, which we may have some control over, is this spiritual disconnection, so to speak. And th that's why it's difficult to talk about this in 29 words or less, sort of, so to speak, right? Is because what is that spiritual disconnection? Um, that I'll give a really, you know, oversimplified answer for the moment. And that is that uh, um, we in the so-called dominant cultures, the quote unquote West, as it were, um, have been uh, educated and trained and conditioned for hundreds of years, if not actually probably a couple thousand years at least, I would think, but especially in the latest few hundred years, to see ourselves as separate from everything and separate from nature and, and have been granted, as the Christian teachings say, granted dominion over it all to, in a sense, do as we will. But ultimately, the real issue is this this disconnection. It's really hard, you know, if one hasn't heard the term or hasn't thought about it, it's hard to come to terms with what it is. But uh, I think this is where the psychedelics come in because people often report that when they take a psychedelic in the right kinds of circumstances, you know, proper set and setting and all those sorts of things, they um, 
they make a connection to the spirit and to nature uh, in a way that they go, oh, yes, we actually are connected. We are embedded in this uh, web, this interwoven web. And we are, um, you know, once you, once you start making that kind of connection, you, 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 you're much less likely to be able to um, disconnect from it and behave as if you can do anything you want on this planet. Um, you know, chew it up, use it up, throw it away kind of idea, you know? So um, that's the consciousness transformation that I think is necessary on the planet. Yeah, you know, I've heard the counter argument, well, you don't need drugs to do that, you know, and there's this word drugs, very big word, you know, that encompasses so many different things. But, you know, you can meditate in a cave like the Tibetan monks for, you know, 30 years and and, and there is natural ways to get there. But this book discusses what uh, it calls the psychedelic renaissance. And it occurs to me we need some strong medicine because we're so disconnected uh, from mm -hmm. nature and we're so abusive of nature and i love the way the book uh, says currently we are at the intersection between ancient wisdoms and the psychedelic renaissance mm -hmm. that's beautiful and can you speak to this term psychedelic renaissance sure um uh if i may um speak to a couple things you addressed at the beginning of your comment as well uh first of all drugs uh or actually two two things first of all i i agree on one level you do not necessarily need psychedelics to um uh go you know to um achieve if you will the awakened state uh <clears throat> it's just that if you do use them properly so to speak and that's a big topic in itself of course they show you things that you that most people had not encountered before and they're real you know indigenous people often say these 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 realms that you enter into are more real than what we call reality because our reality is what the great uh, aldous uh, huxley once called a reducing valve um, we've reduced our consciousness down to a trickle of its potential and the psychedelics open up the tap again potentially um, so that, and then I just want to comment on the use of the word drugs, because, um, you know, those, for those people that, you know, think of these substances as artificial enlightenment, if you will, I don't think so. It's again because of the, of the, um, the way that we have closed down and limited our consciousness, that they kind of break open like an icebreaker in that sense, right? So drug, uh, just briefly, um, I like uh, Terence McKenna's definition of a drug more or less quoting him uh, and that is uh, he calls a drug anything that promotes habitual unexamined behavior and ah. psychedelics do not promote habitual unexamined behavior when in stronger doses especially and again when used properly they pull us out of habitual patterns and behavior and unexamined behavior so the, i don't think of them as drugs i think of them as um, reality uh, allies you might say or reality medicines you know, I think everybody should take or at least try psychedelics. I've done mm -hmm. a ton of them. I, I grew up in the 60s and 70s, and I probably took LSD 75 times. And when I tell people that, it blows their mind. But then I I think about what the book says about the possible overuse of psychedelics. And, mm -hmm. and it occurs to me that you can take these things uh, a lot, and it and it does open the doors of perception, and you see a much broader uh, point of view, mm -hmm. but it doesn't really fundamentally um, change you. There's still, 
I mean, what's your commentary on that? How often it, would it be optimal for people to take psychedelics and what should they expect? Well, you know, that's a great question. And it actually, you know, has a few threads that could be followed up on. Um, so I'm going to reference Jamie Wheel on this one, who's one of the contributors and has also spoken twice at our conference. And the guy is brilliant. Um, he offered a, a kind of a template. You know, he said, you know, this isn't science. It's just an idea. He said, how about this? How about there's 10% of the people at one end of the continuum from zero to 100 of the demographic, so to speak, who should never take psychedelics for several reasons. They're too fragile. Uh, they're already too sensitive. Um, in Jamie's configuration, about 80% of the people in the middle might only be wise to take psychedelics three or four times in their lives at seminal moments, you know, graduating from high school, getting married, the birth of the first child, um, you know, the, the funeral of your beloved father or something like that. Um, so it's questionable in that regard how often most people should take them, I would say. And then there's the issue of, um, uh, as you, you know, as you pointed out, Paolo, uh, you know, it's one thing to go there and have these what you might call visits and insights and inspirations like the novelist Tom Robbins said he takes LSD this was years ago about once a year for a reality check. Um, so and then there's Aldous Huxley's comment that uh, once you uh, or Alan Watts actually that you know when you get the message hang up the phone that I don't completely buy that one because as um, Another writer, Benny Shannon, said in his book, Antipodes of the Mind, it's like a course at university. You get an insight. You put it into practice in your life. If you do that, the next time you come back, this is with ayahuasca, next time you come back to ayahuasca, she, he, it recognizes that. It's actually, and that's a, a huge thing that we can't really cover today, I don't think, but pretty much all the indigenous people say there's a spirit behind these medicines. As Kat Harrison puts, points out in my cannabis book, uh, all indigenous people say there's a mother uh, that's like the overseer of all these plants. And a lot of indigenous people say you need to connect with that spirit if you're really going to fully benefit from the medicine. And so the, the spirit gives you uh, a hand with understanding what you need to understand. Right. So let's talk about the medicines. They're, they're called... There's some called the great medicines in chapter two of the book. Mm -hmm. um, and what are they and what what's the difference between them? Well, I put that chapter together and wrote some of the little sections and got a couple, you know, I think three of the contributors to contribute to, to those as well. Um, and as I say in the little opening paragraph there, and this is not an exhaustive list of anything you might call the great medicines. Um, they're just the ones that are most well known and most likely, as I say, in there to be implicated in the future of our work together of healing and awakening on this planet. So, uh, um, uh, ayahuasca, obviously, the combination of two jungle plants that have been discovered independently in far-flung areas, regions of the Amazon, and uh, is very well known, is working its way around the world these days. Um, and then there's peyote, which is a whole different situation. It's a beautiful medicine, as you mentioned in your intro. Uh, I spent about 12 years working with the Native American church uh, in their peyote ceremonies, their peyote prayer ceremonies. And I love that medicine. It's, it's, it's really pure. It's really uh, true. It's, it's a heart medicine. It's a reality medicine. It's for those people, it's mostly not about visions, etc. about out of body experiences. It's about embodying in the heart. 
and seeing things as they truly are and healing what needs to be healed. Uh, and also peyote is something I, I, I think people need to be extremely respectful of a way of in a way that is perhaps more more so than some of these other medicines because it's endangered and uh, it is uh, in my view the um, uh, the Native Americans have the have uh, they need it really badly so to speak for a number of reasons and they often don't have enough of it. It needs to be protected and the ways that it's used need to be protected in an unusual kind of a way or you might even say unique way. So, and then there's of course the psilocybin mushrooms, which are, as most people know, getting more and more attention these days. Uh, they're starting to be used in therapy more and more with some incredibly promising results. Just people could check out the work that uh, Johns Hopkins University has done uh, with uh, healthy volunteers that have or have not had psychedelics before and end of life terminal patients, cancer patients, and stunning results with that, like people having mystical experiences and changing their whole attitude about their, um, their you know, impending doom altogether. Uh, and then there's, of course, you know, the grand, what we might even call the granddaddy in the, in the white Western world, so to speak, LSD, which is actually a Johnny come lately in the, in the pantheon of uh, plant medicines, but uh, was uh, uh, first uh, synthesized, I think, in 1938 by the Swiss chemist uh, Albert Hoffman. Uh, and uh, I, I, Hoffman kind of makes it clear that there was something really uncanny about it, as if a spirit, even though LSD doesn't seem to really have a spirit in the same way as these natural, complete, completely just natural plant medicines do, um, it, was, it was really uncanny the way it came to him. Uh, that's a story. That right. It's a great see. story. Yeah. Yeah. T told elsewhere. And, uh, but, um, but it has, you know, again, when used properly, immense potential as well. Very powerful, longer lasting. So how, would a, person, um, how yeah. would a person know which psychedelic to try if they were interested? I mean, the book by um, Michael Pollan is really an mm -hmm. interesting primer for people. Mm -hmm. But what would your advice be if somebody was saying, well, you know, I'd like, I'm willing to try mm -hmm. this. I'm a relatively stable person. Uh, mm -hmm. Which one would you recommend uh, to somebody who hasn't done anything more than smoke pot yeah well that's a good question and i don't think there's actually one answer for it uh, paulo right, right. um I, I think what's most important uh, well first of all you said relatively stable uh you have to be i think willing to be changed for one thing you know you, there has to be some degree of openness curiosity uh need for healing etc that you are willing to see things that you haven't yet considered or that don't fit into your existing, you know, pantheon of belief systems, etc. If you're, you know, there are people uh, that would not be able to, they're, they're, they may, they may seem, um, you know, mentally stable, but they wouldn't be able to open to these substances. Uh, right, right. You know, I can mm -hmm. think of a few politicians offhand, you know, <laughs> sure. names I'll keep out of it, um, um, that probably just would have a bad experience and just write it off, you know. But, well, uh, if, I'd say if a person is not willing to let go of being in control all the time and having yeah, their ego yeah. uh, run the show, they're probably going to have a hard time with a... a That's why I picked on politicians, yeah. yeah right. Uh, so... <laughs> Uh, as as one as one subgroup in the culture that might have problems that way sometimes. In any case, uh, uh, I think the most important issue is uh, the um, beyond the actual specific medicine 
is the uh, setting, the environment that you take it in, and who's guiding it, whether it be a sitter, a guide, a therapist, which are all actually different things, or a ceremonial leader, to find uh, through word of mouth or however you can do it by coming to a conference like ours, for example, uh, where it's great for making connections and asking people like, you know, who have you done medicine with and do you recommend that person? Uh, so um, finding the right kind of safe and effective place is essential. Um, so beyond you, that, you, you want to ask a question? Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. You, you're talking about setting and I, and the conference, you know, and there was, uh, I went to the conference a couple of years ago and I've went to it twice, two years in a row. And I loved it. And um, there was uh, some talk about sitters and, and there were people who actually hired themselves out as psychedelic mm -hmm. sitters. And I was thinking, wow, man, back in the day, of the hippies in San Francisco, where I grew up, you know, we were taking LSD all the time or often, and we never had, I mean, set and setting was always kind of important, but not maybe important enough for us. But how mm -hmm. important do you think it is for people these days to have a sitter that somebody that's there with them providing a safe space? Well, yeah, that's a complicated one too, Paolo. And I, I, I you know, you're right. I mean, many people have taken LSD over the last 50 years or so and in our day and you know back in the day as it were and psilocybin mushrooms is quite commonly people take them on their own or with a couple of friends or whatever uh, uh i'm concerned about the whatever might be 10 percent or so of the people who are going to be faced with ego dissolution and don't know what's happening and become terrified from uh, by it and then do something really dangerous or stupid because of it uh, that sometimes results in 911 calls, for example. Um, so that's a, that's a concern. And so I think everybody needs to know what these substances can actually do, especially in stronger doses, which is they can indeed um, completely dissolve this uh, sense of identity that we had formed in our minds. It exists only in thought in that sense, right? right so right. you... You know, I, I won't go into it in detail, but I just I remember, for example, I wished I'd known this back when I was 19, because I remember one of our one of my friends telling me I wasn't there that night, but uh, one of them had taken a pretty strong dose of acid and um, he freaked out and said, I'm dying. Well, there was nothing wrong with him. It was it was his ego that was dying. So um, instead of that being. Uh, um, an incredible potential learning experience for him. They just tried to assure him, yes, your name is Scott and you're okay and you know, you'll know you get through this and so on. And so it's like he survived the peak and then came back into some place where he knew he was his, himself again. But what a proper uh, sitter or guide or therapist or ceremonial leader would do in that kind of situation is say, don't buy into any story about this. You're not dying. You're having what you might call an ego death experience. It'll change if you stay present with it. Just keep breathing. Just yeah. breathe and go with This is what they told people going into the Johns Hopkins things is if you get scared, it's your own fear that's coming up to try to stop you from going deeper. So don't buy the story. Just keep breathing and let go and trust. Trust with a capital T to me is like central to the whole spiritual awakening journey. Right. Right, right. You know, in the book, you have several indigenous contributors. And why was it important to include indigenous voices in, in this uh, compendium? Yeah, good question. Uh, well, from my point of view, uh, and from my experience and from my reading, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera, and 
you know, obviously the connection to the Native American church. And I've done ayahuasca in Peru, for example, with indigenous uh, ceremonial leaders and with the Santo Daimi uh, syncretic religion here, which is sort of um, a mix of indigenous and sort of Christian influences. Uh, my uh, my uh, research, if you will, in various ways, uh, indicates that there are, even though most of those cultures have been largely destroyed, those ancient cultures, uh, there are threads of uh, um, earth-connected wisdom that still exist in there, in, in some of those cultures, and some people are still carrying those threads of wisdom, and they have to do with our embedded relationship to land and spirit that I talked about earlier briefly. Right, right. Uh, they know something about that oftentimes, and they have some things to share with us. Uh, they, I thought they those, know were, how to... those were some yeah. of the best chapters. I really enjoyed the chapters. Uh, where there's like 25 essays in this book, and the ones mm -hmm. that were written by indigenous people were just fascinating. Uh, to me, I, I would. I don't want to pick, you know, like, like a favorite child, you know, and <laughs> denigrate the others, but, but definitely one of my favorite chapters in the book is by Tyson Yunkaporta, which is an Australian Aboriginal academic, woodcarver, etc., and he ha he just has an amazing worldview that comes directly from the Aboriginal people of Australia that he's has been deeply embedded with. He is Aboriginal, but spent a lot of time learning from the elders and so on. And one thing I'll just say really briefly, I really recommend people make sure they get to that chapter in the book because it's sort of in the later third. Right. Uh, because he he cautions about uh, this overuse of psychedelics that you mentioned. You know, he says that if if you don't get the message more or less right away, you probably didn't do it right. He said, you know, before you go charging off into the cosmos, you need to understand the land beneath your feet and the community that you're involved in. Otherwise, you do, you don't get handed any responsibility uh, and responsibility for what we do with these is key to the book. Well, you know, that brings up the question of uh, to what extent can psychedelics be uh, combined with other spiritual practices like perhaps yoga or meditation ways to kind of ground the insights or the uh, uh, the wisdom that, that that wants to come through. Well, I think if you can ski on acid, as a lot of these people are doing, then you can pretty, you definitely can do yoga or meditate. <laughs> um, uh, but, uh, you know, that's a little bit of a tricky, uh, difficult uh, thing to answer in a simple way. I think in terms of actually doing the practices while you're in the in, under the influence, I, I can't say for a fact, but I suspect that dosage might be pretty important there. You don't want to be completely overblown because you know, with a really strong dose, you probably just want to close your eyes and either sit up straight or lie down and uh, let yourself go with it. But in somewhat moderate doses, which is what the LSD skiers do, they keep it, I don't know what the actual dosage is, but it's a functional dose, you know, it's not like the, the you know, the hill suddenly melts or something like that in front of you. Um, it, it, it's actually um, a, a performance enhancer at that point for those people because it gives them more focus. Uh, so in in minor doses, uh, you might say uh, could be more than microdosing, but I wouldn't say you know uh, full on what McKenna Terence McKenna called heroic or committed doses would probably not be appropriate for you know say I'm thinking of a Buddhist practice like the Vajrayana practices where you're reading texts and that sort of thing. You know the lines might start to blur. Right, <laughs> I've right. seen that in the eye. 
in the Santo Daimi thing where they, they give you, if you don't mem if you haven't memorized the songs, which, you know, most of the less experienced people like myself had not memorized this, all the songs, um, they give you a booklet. And I've, I've been in the, in those meetings where I'm reading the words and colors and circles and moving <laughs> shapes are moving all over the page, you know, so uh, there's, I, a, there's a bit of an issue there. But the other thing is that they, that, um, they they potentially they the psychedelics can potentially show you deep places that you haven't actually been able to get to on your regular practices and then become a sort of um uh like a a, a lead post for you a, you know a guide post like oh boy. Uh, this is the state that i can keep working toward because that's the that's the ultimate practice anyway is the moment by moment practice you know you take a psychedelic maybe i don't know once uh, once a month once a, once every two months once twice a year whatever it's only we're talking four five six maybe 10 12 hours at the most that's a tiny tiny propor proportion or portion of your waking life right right the rest of the time you you need to practice uh watching the mind and seeing how you fool yourself with sabotaging thoughts of one kind or another right. neutral neutral non-judgmental um, or recognition and let them go, be in your body, embodiment, breathing, etc. And for that, I think uh, cannabis should get uh, a strong shout out as an important medicine for helping people become embodied and uh, connect to their earthliness, if you will, if they use it properly and don't just sit on the couch eating pizza, drinking beer and watching shows. I really appreciate your work on cannabis, too. I know you wrote another book that's all about it. And I've actually sat in on some ceremonies that you led uh, that uh, uh, leveraged cannabis. Um, it's really a different point of view than the normal hedonistic dopamine-seeking way that most people use cannabis. Well, we're just about yeah. running out of time. And if, I just want to say... Uh, that if there's anyone connecting narrative thread that stands out from others in this book, it might be understanding that individually and collectively, we homo sapiens, for all our stunning ignorance and missteps, are capable of remarkable and perhaps ultimately near limitless vision and manifestation. And that's a quote from the book. And uh, if you have any last words, Stephen, I'd really appreciate it. But we've pretty much run out of time. Right. Uh yeah, it flew by, that's for sure. Uh, oh, um, I'm not sure, but okay, I'll just say this. Uh, the psychedelics are, uh, as you said at the very beginning, Paolo, um, strong medicine for an advanced state of crisis, illness, so to speak. Uh, they're not for everybody, and they're not a be-all and an end-all in themselves. It's not about having the experiences per se. It's about uh, waking up enough to be part of this healing process the work that needs to be done, we all need, anyone who can essentially needs to roll up their sleeves and participate in whatever way is natural and available to them for the generations to come. Not for right now necessarily, because we are probably heading into what Chris Bache in the book calls a death and rebirth process. And another way of describing it is that we are in the birth canal now, and that's a difficult time place to be. Uh, as a metaphor and in reality, of course. Uh, uh, but if we are able to do this as a collective, uh, as a collective, as it were, if enough of us are able to wake up to our true nature, then there is a chance, perhaps a good chance, that we will give birth to what Chris Bache calls the future human. And Dwayne Elgin, another contributor to the book, calls a mature planetary civilization. Beautiful. 
Well, thank you, Stephen. There's so much more we could explore, but we have run out of time. But let's be sure to tell our listeners about your website, which is www.stephengrayvision.com. For those of you who may have tuned into Pathways Late, this is your host, Paul O'Brien, author of Intuitive Intelligence, a book that shares the theme of Pathways, which is personal and cultural evolution. Now, don't worry, you can play or share this interview whenever you want via the internet or as a free podcast, and I'll tell you how in a minute. Today, we've been visiting with Stephen Gray, author of How Psychedelics Can Help Save the World, I should say editor of How Psychedelics Can Save the World, Visionary and Indigenous Voices Speak Out. I want to say thank you to all of our listeners for tuning into Pathways, which is broadcast and streamed on the internet at www.kboo.fm, produced every Sunday morning by Donald Altman or myself at 8.30 USA Pacific Time. An even better podcast of today's show, which you can listen to and forward to others, are available for free at divination.com. That's spelled D-I-V-I nation.com, as well as via iTunes, my YouTube channel, and other free podcast servers. This is Paul O'Brien reminding you to tell your friends about Pathways Radio and Podcasts. And thanks again to Stephen Gray and to all of you listeners for tuning in and being a part of the Pathways Conversation.